Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah chapter 58 tonight. I just want to reassure the folks on the internet that we did not have a message last week, so you didn't miss anything. We are in chapter 58 of Isaiah tonight. There are nine chapters left in the book of Isaiah. And chapter 58 is the beginning of this last section of the book of Isaiah. And it is kind of a summary of everything that has gone before it. So we know early on the commission of Isaiah. We know that he was told to go speak to the children of Israel and the children of Judah. But we're also told that God is going to harden their hearts so that in seeing they would see and not understand, in hearing they would hear and not comprehend. And so Isaiah knew from the beginning that he was going to speak to a sinful, hard-hearted nation that was not going to understand what he was saying and were not going to respond positively to what he was saying. And the greater bulk of the book of Isaiah is about the sinfulness, about the guilt of Israel, And then the promises of this glorious future, based on promises that God had already made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you have this contrast midway through the book where you've got these very guilty, very sinful people who are also getting all these promises from God of this glorious future. And then we are introduced to the means, to the method of how God is going to transfer these people from their sinful estate to that glorious future, and it's all going to be done through the Messiah, the suffering servant who's going to come and die for the sins and for the disease, for the corruption of the nation of Israel. And that's kind of where we are when we get to like chapter 53 and 54 or 55, even up to what we read last week. But in chapter 58, Isaiah introduces yet again the guilt, the sinfulness of the children of Israel, and in particular, the house of Jacob. Now, the reason that I'm going to take this slowly is because so much of it is actually conversation between God and Israel back and forth. But in the text itself, you're not told who is speaking Instead, you have to kind of read the content of what's being said to understand who the speaker is and what the response is. Part of chapter 58 has to do with the Sabbath. We, in the New Covenant, are not Sabbath-observant. We are not Sabbath-keeping people. And so it's easy for us to forget the importance that the Sabbath had in the relationship between Israel and God. The the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, not just the feasts, but the seven-day Sabbath, sevens of sevens and the year of Jubilee, 
All of that was part of the covenant that God made with Israel. It was the sign and seal of the covenant made at Mount Sinai between Israel and God. And so the failure to keep the Sabbath was tantamount to breaking the covenant in every way. And so that's going to come up in this chapter as God, again, is reciting the guilt of Israel. But the first part of chapter 58 is about fasting. And there's not a lot said in the Bible about fasting. We, we know that people did fast. Sometimes they did it voluntarily. Sometimes they did it because they had to. Paul, in talking about his various trials, talked about being stoned and talked about being shipwrecked and day and the night in the deep. And in fastings often, and I don't think he was talking about voluntary fasting there. He was saying, oftentimes, there just wasn't any food. I just was hungry, just didn't have anything to eat. The only place where you see God actually command fasting is in the writing about the Feast of Atonement. In the description of the Feast of Atonement, God actually uses a phrase, you will afflict your souls as part of that feast. And the afflicting of the soul seems to be to fast. Again, another interesting thing about biblical descriptions of fasting is that we're not ever told what the instructions are for fasting. How long should you do it? Is it okay to drink water? Or can it be just a fast of a particular food? Or can it be... Instead, what we just read is that fastings happened and that God did command a fast during the Feast of the Day of Atonement. And they, Israel, couldn't even get that one right. They couldn't even live up to fasting. Now, why would God direct them to fast? In this chapter, we're going to find out why. The afflicting of their souls was meant to humble them, for them to spend that time thinking about God, communicating with God, and then being kind, gracious in their obedience to God, being kind to people around them, even their servants. But instead, what they had done was to begin fasting and then being cruel to other people, continuing in their greed, continuing in their unfairness. And yet, they like to walk around saying, we're the people of God. They still like to walk around saying, we've still got God on our side, and we know the things that God has done for our forefathers, and we're in this land because of God. So they liked all the benefits of God, but they weren't obedient to God. And so really, the application of this chapter, the first part of this chapter, is that God denounces the fact that while they like the benefits of God, they thought that just doing the religious stuff, just doing the outward practices, was going to be enough for God to say, okay, well done. I approve of you. So this whole conversation between God and Israel is your guilt lays in the fact that you appreciate my benefits, but you don't do what I say but you still do the, the religious practices thinking that you're obligating me by the fact that you're doing that. 
And I think we can apply that to this very day. So much of what goes on in the religious world is little more than repetitious practices, religious practices. I used to describe my Lutheran upbringing as we knew when to stand up, when to sit down, when to fight, fight, fight. We, we knew how to do the stuff, how to recite the creeds. We knew exactly how the religious practices go, but God oftentimes decries those who speak well of him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And that is what Israel is really guilty of. And that's really what lays at the heart of all of Israel's sin. It wasn't that they just said, we don't want God. We don't want anything to do with God. They remember the history of God. They remember the deliverance of God. They remember the things that their parents have told them. They remember the things that the prophets have written down for them. But what they know, or at least what they assume about themselves is, that makes us the special people of God. We're the chosen people of God. We're the ones that God likes. So therefore, when God says to do something, if I don't do it exactly right, if I trim the edges off, if I make it more palatable for me, as long as I do it in some way, as long as I bring an animal, it doesn't have to be spotless. It doesn't have to be unblemished. In fact, it doesn't matter if it's sick. As long as I bring an animal, and God is not fooled by that kind of thing. As long as I do a fast, but it doesn't matter what the attitude of my fasting is. If I just stop eating for a little while to show that I'm afflicting my soul, but I'm still cruel to my servants, then that's still fasting. It's technically still fasting. God will still approve of me. Well, that's all going to come up here in chapter 58 where God is going to say, the kind of fasting you're doing is not the kind of fast that I have prescribed for you. Instead, this is what a real fast would look like. And what you'll find out is that the God-type prescribed fast has much more to do than just not eating. It has to do with how you live. It has to do with your heart. It has to do with how you treat other people. So all, comprehensively, all of what God prescribes is part of what true worship toward God is. Truncating it and only doing a part of it and thinking that God is pleased with your scaled-down efforts, God here is going to say, that's still just as sinful as your adultery, as your chasing after other gods. As, this is why you are so sinful. You get the background of it? So hopefully then that will help when we get to verse 1 and it says, Cry loudly, do not hold back. That may be an instruction from God to Isaiah, but it seems to be just a general instruction. In other words, don't make this a secret. Cry it out loud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression. Declare to them that they are guilty before me and declare to the house of Jacob their sins. And yet, despite the fact that you are sinful, in a way that God is about to describe to them so that there's no question about their guilt, yet they seek me day by day, and they delight to know my ways. That's all the stuff that I was saying, their history, their background. They like the stories. They believe that God has delivered them and preferred them. They like all of that stuff. 
You delight to know my ways. As a nation that has done righteousness, that is not God's declaration that they are righteous, he's saying, you prefer me by putting on this look, this attitude, this characterization that you're the nation that does righteousness. And that's what makes you extra guilty is that you put on this show that you like me, that you prefer me, that you're following after me like a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. And they ask me for just decisions, for righteous choices. In other words, they want God to fight for them. They want God to defend them from their enemies. They want God to protect them from the wild animals. They want God to provide food for them every day. So they want the benefits of God. They're not against the benefits. Yes, they want God to be God as long as it suits them and benefits them. And they delight in the nearness of God. They delight in the fact that God is right there near them and active in their lives as long as it's good for them. But then they ask questions like verse 3. Why have we fasted and you did not see it? You did not notice it. This is their charge against God. We're doing the religious stuff, and yet you don't seem to have noticed. I'm not getting the stuff I wanted. You're not paying me back the way I think I ought to be paid back. Why have we fasted and you did not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves? Why have we afflicted ourselves and you didn't notice? Well, this is a charge that God brings up against Israel on several different occasions. For instance, go to the book of Malachi, which is the very last book of the Old Testament the very last book of the Old Testament, the very last word of the very last book of the New Testament is the word curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse and then God is silent for 400 years. Here God makes a similar charge. I'm in chapter 3 of the book of Malachi. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me the way that they are speaking, the way that they are conducting themselves, shows a certain arrogance, a certain assumption, a certain presumption that I am the God who loves you, I'm the God that provides for you, and I'll just always be that way regardless of how you act. That's presumptive and arrogant of you, and your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, what have we ever spoken against you? So that's very much like the question from the book of Isaiah. Why have we fasted and you didn't see it? We afflicted our souls and you don't seem to have noticed because they don't get the bigger picture. They don't see that the way that they're living day by day is not in accordance with the will or the command or the directives, the ordinances of God. And yet in their arrogance, they'd stand up against God and say, hey, hey, I did the stuff. Where's the reward? Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, when have we spoken against you? What have we ever said against you? Here's his answer, verse 14. You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have 
walked in mourning. We've afflicted our souls. We've done our fasting before the Lord of hosts. And yet, what profit is there to all of that? See, this is part of the arrogance of Israel that God is calling out both in Malachi and in Isaiah, that they'll do the rote religious stuff and they think that is buying them some favor with God. So now we call the arrogant, this is again what they do, verse 15, since they are all speaking arrogantly against God. So now we call arrogant people blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Okay, just a couple quick comments on this because we're not really trying to work our way through Malachi here, but the difference between rote religious practice and behavior that actually pleases God is not a matter of the outward man or the outward doing of something. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of internal obedience and love toward God, which is why they would say that it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning, afflicting our souls before the Lord of hosts? Let's talk for just a moment about that attitude, because I still see that attitude prevailing in so much of the modern church. It is a very humanistic, egocentric notion that we are obedient to God because of the benefits we get back from God. That we can obligate God through our good works and that if we keep doing those good works, at least to the degree that they please God, that God will keep blessing us as if our worship of God is an exchange of value. He's going to give us stuff, so we give him stuff. But the truth of the matter is, God deserves worship and obedience because he's God. God deserves to be praised. God deserves our obedience to his directives and his ordinances because he's God and we are merely men. We are merely creatures. We do what he says because he's (coughs) worth it. That's what the word worship means. It's a contraction of two old English words, worth-ship. And because there is eternal value to God, that makes him eternally worth it. And therefore, because he is eternally worth it, we worship him. If we get benefits from him, that's grace on God's part. He owes us nothing. So if he gives you clothes and food and lets you know your own name and provides for you for another day. That is just kindness on God's part. That is just grace on God's part. So the Israelites got that all wrong. They got that all turned around. And so they would speak arrogantly against God. And when God would call them out for it and say, you're arrogant against me, they'd say, well, where did we ever talk against you? And his answer is, The way that you act, the way that you are doing these religious practices like fasting, like Sabbath keeping, just in order to gain benefit from me is an arrogance by you because you don't seem to understand who it is you're talking to. I deserve your obedience. I deserve your worship. I deserve your praise, even if you got nothing out of it. 
The first thing that you have to understand about the guilt that Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 58 is that your guilt is based on the presumption that you are God's people, and yet, though you like the benefits of my being in your midst, you continue in your sin and your arrogance against me in the way that you are living day by day. He'll spell that out in a moment. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people what their transgression is all about. And to the house of Jacob, declare their sins. And yet, despite their sinfulness, despite their transgression, yet they seek me day by day and they delight to know my ways as if they are a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. And they ask me for just decisions, righteous decisions on their behalf. And they delight in the nearness of God. And yet you ask, why have we fasted? And you don't see it. Why have we humbled ourselves? And you haven't noticed it. Okay, here now, the second half of verse 3, is why they're so guilty in their fast. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find desire rising up in you rather than humility before God. You find desire, fleshly desire rising up in you, and you drive all your workers. You drive them hard. You keep your servants working hard while you're busy afflicting yourself so that you can try to get more benefit from me. It is an attitude of the heart. It is the way you are approaching the ordinances of God. You think that your simple obedience in the flesh without obedience from the inner man is enough to obligate me to use my decisions on your behalf. And you think you deserve that. That, God says here in Isaiah and in Malachi, that is arrogance. That is presumption on your part. Because you're not doing what I told you to do. You drive hard, all your workers. And behold, verse 4, behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. In other words, you're very corrupt. You're very sinful. You're always at contention with your brethren. You're at strife and fighting with other people. And you're hitting each other. And you're striking each other with a wicked fist. And yet... You think I'm going to pay attention because you didn't eat today. So God's answering the question, why have we fasted and you did not see? Why have we afflicted and humbled ourselves and you did not notice? God's answer is, oh, I noticed. Let me describe to you what your fast is like. You're just not eating, but you're arrogantly fleshly in the way that you strike each other and fight with each other and continue in your strife against each other and you drive all your workers and all your servants hard during the day of your fast, which is supposed to be a day of humility, supposed to be a day of recognizing that you have a master over you. God will describe that in a moment as well. This is kind of a convoluted sentence. You Do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. In other words, the fast you're doing today 
the one where you're in contention and strife, the one where you're striking people with wicked hands and driving your workers hard, that's the fast that God is speaking of when he says the fast that you're doing right now, you do not fast like you do today in order to make your voice heard on high. Remember their question, why do we fast and you don't see it? God's answer is because of the kind of fast you're having. And that's not the kind of fast you have if you want God on high to hear you. You see the argument? Verse 5 is God saying, this is what a good fast would look like. Is it a fast like this, the one you're doing right now? Is that the kind that I choose? Because the kind of fast that I prescribe for you, the kind of fast that I choose for you, is a day for a man to humble himself and for bowing one's head like a reed. Except that God puts these all in question form, and that's kind of what's so difficult about reading this text. Verse 5 actually in question form says, Is this a fast like I choose? Because the fast I choose is a day for a man to humble himself. Is it for bowing one's head like a reed? And for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed, those are signs of humility and signs of mourning before God, signs of repentance before God, wearing sackcloth, putting ashes on your head. Rather than you fasting in a way where you humble yourself before God, you're doing your fast as a means to be arrogant against God. So you want to know why I'm not listening? Because that's not how you talk to the one on high. Will you call this, this thing you're doing right now, this arrogant fast that you're doing, where you're still fighting and still in contention and strife and still driving your workers hard, will you call this a fast? Will you call this an acceptable day to the Lord? The answer is axiomatic. The answer is no. Now that you know what a real fast is and you know what you're doing, how do you call this acceptable before me? And the reference to an acceptable day to the Lord, I told you earlier, the only place where God prescribes a fast and the afflicting of their souls is during the Day of Atonement. And so that may be the reference to an acceptable day here. God is saying, is this an acceptable way to keep the feast that I have prescribed? You come and you do it, and you walk through the fleshly stuff of it, but your heart's not changed, your attitude's not changed, you're not obedient toward me. You're not worshiping toward me because of the value that you find in me. You're doing it for what you can get out of it. And doesn't that sound like so much of modern religion, really? You do it because of what you can get out of it. Do I need to mention the name it, claim it groups? Do I need to mention the Pentecostal groups that say, come to Jesus and your life will get better and you won't get sick and... You get a new car, and your children will run faster and jump higher, and your marriage will improve, and money is just going to come your way if you send all your money to me first. God is saying here, if that's the kind of obedience you think is acceptable to me, you've got it all wrong because your attitude is all wrong. Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Now he's going to describe the kind of fast that he does prescribe. Is this not the fast which I choose? 
to loosen the bonds of wickedness. You live in wickedness. You are engulfed in wickedness. You are bound up in wickedness. But the kind of fast that I prescribe, if it is obedient to God and worship toward God and afflicting your soul and recognizing your own sinfulness, is going to separate you from your wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke that yoke that is on your neck that holds you in your wickedness. The purpose of my fast is to free you from that and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. That's my kind of fast. And you're not doing that. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That's a really interesting phrase. Not to pretend in your own fleshly wickedness that you're actually good, that you're actually righteous. To recognize who you are. And to pray before God to forgive you because you are a miserable sinner. And then do works, just like we've been reading on Sunday mornings, do works of righteousness, do works of goodness that are demonstrated through kindness to each other. Dividing your bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your house. And when you see a naked person, cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own fleshly sinful depravity. Which is very much like what Adam and Eve did. And human beings have been doing ever since. Maybe if I just hide my depravity good enough, God won't notice. Then, verse 8 says, if you do all that, if your fasting is the kind of fasting that I prescribe, then your light will break out like the dawn, like the rising of the sun. That's how the light that is godly, the light that is righteous, then it's going to break out. And your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be behind you. It'll be your rear guard. You'll walk in the righteousness and the glory of God if you do things God's way. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. So all of that was God's answer to the question, why have we fasted and you didn't see? Why have we afflicted ourselves and you didn't even notice? God's answer was because you did it in your arrogance, in your flesh. But if you are to walk in my ways, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will be your rear guard. And when you call, the Lord himself will answer and you will cry and he will say, I'm right here. Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourselves to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloominess will become like the midday sun. And the Lord will continually guide you 
and satisfy your desire in the scorched places. In other words, if you're someplace where there's no food, you're going to be provided water and food in the scorched places. God will continue to provide for you. In fact, the very thing that you want, the benefits of God that you want, the thing that you're desiring to get by your fleshly behavior and your arrogance, you'll actually accomplish, you'll actually achieve if you just do things my way. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters never dry up. They do not fail. And those from among you, your own people, you as a nation, and those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins and you will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets in which you dwell. Remember when Isaiah is saying this, that Judah is in the Babylonian captivity. Israel has already been taken out of their land. And so this language of going back and rebuilding the foundations and restoring the breach and rebuilding the streets is all the desire of dispersed Israel to come back to Jerusalem, to come back and be the great kingdom that they once were. And if you're responsible for going back and doing that, then people are going to remember your name. You're going to be part of the story of the restitution and the restoration of Jerusalem. To this very day, we still know names like Nehemiah. Because he was one of those responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem. So here's a promise from Isaiah that you're going to be called among those who rebuild the ancient ruins. And you will raise up the age-old foundations. And you'll be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets in which you dwell. Verse 13 then, God turns the subject from fasting to keeping his Sabbath. And this, as I said, Sabbath keeping is the sign, the seal, the mark of the old covenant, the Sinai covenant. And they're not keeping the Sabbath is a demonstration that they don't have faith in God to provide for them. I mean, it was difficult to let your land lay fallow every seven years. It was hard to say, okay, after the sixth year, I'm now not going to have a harvest for two years. You have to completely trust God, that he's going to provide the food. He's going to take care of you. And so they refused to do it. The children of Israel would continue to get out there and work their fields and get their harvests because they just didn't trust God enough to provide for them. And that breaking of the Sabbath, the seven-year Sabbath, the Jubilee Sabbath, when everything would go back to its original owner, to the original families that God had given it to in the first place. And then the weekly Sabbath, every Saturday from sundown to sundown, just not doing any servile work, not doing any buying, selling, trading, not enriching yourself, but just concentrating on God and his provision and his goodness. They weren't doing any of that. They broke all the Sabbath rules so verse 13 says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, 
Okay, he's accusing them. Rather than keeping the Sabbath, they're out doing their own thing. It's my holy day. It's the day I set aside to myself. It's the day you're supposed to be concentrating on me, and yet you're going and doing all your own business and your own enrichment and your own stuff and not trusting me. But if, because it is the Sabbath, you turn your foot, you turn your way, you repent from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and if you call the Sabbath a delight a holy day of the Lord, and you call it honorable, and you shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own words, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. In other words, the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that I have made of a glorious future, the promises that I have made of prosperity in the land of milk and honey, all of that will return to you if you delight in the Lord, if you keep his Sabbaths. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. This is an agreement I have made with you. You already know what my law is. You know what my ordinance is. You know what my expectations are. But just doing them in your flesh in a rote fashion isn't enough. I don't just want your fleshly obedience. I don't just want you to go through the practice without it having an internal change within you, an understanding of who I am and what I am worth, the value of having me in your midst. You want the benefits Well, then do the practices that I prescribe. You want the benefits that only I can offer, and yet you're arrogant against me. And yet you're disobedient against me. And then you have the gumption to stand up and say, hey, I'm doing the stuff. How come I'm not getting rewarded? Okay, so all of chapter 58 is Isaiah yet again spelling out the core depravity of Israel. It's not just about doing evil things. It's not just about sinning. It's not just about chasing foreign gods. It's not just about your spiritual adultery. It's not just about the way that you fight and argue and kill. It's not just about those. It's a matter of the fact that deep down you are so depraved and so egocentric and so arrogant that you stand against me for not doing things the way you think they ought to be done. This is a deep matter. This is a matter of your heart. This is a matter of your attitude. This is a matter of your outlook of who you are and who I am. And you try to hold me to account? So God promises, I'll give you all the stuff you're looking for. I get it. You want the rewards. I get it. You'll get all that. But not as long as you're acting like this. (laughs) I'm astounded at the arrogance of the children of Israel who I assume God knows intimately here that they're being exactly like this, that they would want God to bless them in the midst of their rebellion just because they were doing some of the external religious stuff. Well, that's arrogant if I ever heard of arrogance. 
I mean, the arrogance of saying, God, you owe me because I did the fleshly stuff, but my heart is far from you. And then holding God guilty for not giving you what you desire. What kind of arrogance is that? Okay, so you could read chapter 58, the beginning of this last section of the book of Isaiah. You could read chapter 58 and say, right, God is holding Israel completely guilty, and they are really guilty, and they're guilty in their behavior, and their heart, and their attitude, and their blindness, and their lack of hearing, and they're guilty, 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 therefore, God's done with Israel. That's oftentimes the conclusion that people come to at this point. Okay, then God's done with Israel, because look, he just declared how incredibly guilty they are. That's why it's so important that chapter 59 opens with, Despite all that, despite all your guiltiness, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. I mean, back in chapter 52 and 53, we heard how he's going to save. We learned what the method of the salvation was going to be. That he was going to pour Israel's sins on the suffering servant who was going to suffer in their place. And so God here declares, remember who you are, remember who I am. Remember your arrogance and the depth of your depravity. And don't start thinking that just because I have told you that I am going to put your sinfulness and your guilt on my servant and punish him in your place, don't start getting high-minded. Don't start thinking that makes you important. Don't start thinking that that is a cause for your egocentricity. Instead, God reminds them once again, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. He's never going to stop reminding you. are just guilty. And he calls them the house of Jacob, the heel catcher. He doesn't call them house of Israel, prince that is power with God. No, you're Jacob. You're still guilty. And as guilty as you still are, who are you to say, I can't save you? Well, that's a question that I would pose to the church world at large. Who are you to say that God can't save Israel? God here says, if you say that, you're saying my hand's too short. Like I can't reach down and save whoever I want. You're saying that I'm incapable, the sovereign one, the almighty one. I can't do what I want to do. Haven't you read all the promises that I've made to Israel? Haven't you read the declarations of this glorious future that I'm going to give Israel? And yes, they're guilty. Yes, I know they're guilty. Yes, I get that they're guilty. I think sometimes people in the church today are still trying to convince God of the guiltiness of Israel and how he should not save them because of their guilt. Here God has declared the depth of their depravity. I mean, we would look at them and look at any religious people. We don't know the inner man. We don't know the heart. We don't know the inner person. And we see people doing religious practices, and it's easy for us to say, well, that person is really devoted. But God knows the heart. He knows what's going on inside. He knows if that is genuine devotion or whether that's just rote religious practice, which he gets no pleasure from. So knowing the depth of Israel's depravity And calling it out, not just the external practices, but the internal arrogance of their hearts. He calls that out, makes every one of them guilty, 
and then says, and I can still save them. What a glorious God. What astounding grace. And by the way, that same God knows all the weaselly little parts of you. That same sovereign God knows all the ugly stuff you have ever thought and ever done. That same God knows whether you're actually devoted to him or whether you're just doing the religious stuff. And yet, despite the depth of your depravity, you're being saved by the God who challenges everybody in heaven, hell, and earth and says, but I can still save whoever I want. And don't you tell me I can't. And don't you tell me my hand is too short to save. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The reason I read the first couple of verses of chapter 59 is because God is still answering the question. The question is, why have we fasted and you didn't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you did not notice? His answer is, your iniquities made a separation between you and me. And your sins have hidden my face from you so that I don't listen. That's what did it. You're blaming me. You're accusing me in your arrogance. You're saying that I'm somehow ignoring all your good works. But the truth is, it's you. It's your guilt. It's your activity that has caused me to not listen, to not pay attention, because I know that you're not truly being obedient to me from your heart. For your hands are defiled with blood. And your fingers are defiled with iniquity. And your lips have spoken falsehood. And your tongue mutters wickedness. And no one pleads or sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. Instead, they trust in confusion. And they speak lies. And they conceive mischief. And they bring forth iniquity. And they hatch adders, eggs. And they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will become clothing for them, and they will cover themselves with their evil works. Their works are works of iniquity, and they are an act of violence that is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked, and whoever treads on them does not know peace. We'll pick up there next week with their confession back to God. Now that they hear the accusation, they're going to confess back to God. But just so that you get some sense, chapter 60 starts with, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness is going to cover the earth, 
and deep darkness for all the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, still speaking to Israel, and his glory will appear upon you, and the nations will come to your light. So God hasn't given up on Israel. What he's doing through this entire section is demonstrating to them that they are nothing but guilty, 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 nonstop guilty, completely guilty, deeply depraved, constantly guilty, and that even their religious practices are done in their guiltiness, in their depravity, in their arrogance. So God is trying to pull the rug out from them completely so that they don't trust in their own righteousness, of which they have none. I think that list that God just laid out for us tells us that they have no personal righteous whatsoever so that all the glory for their salvation, just like all the glory for your salvation, Carol, or your salvation, Luann, or your salvation, Tom, all the glory goes to God because he saves people like you and you and you and Israel. And nobody can ever say, look what I did. You know, Jesus said that walking on the planet when he said, you're going to come to me. You're going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done great works in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done all this stuff? And he's going to say, depart from me. Your works are iniquity. I never knew you. That's consistent with everything else that we've been reading here from Isaiah which is your works are not what is going to save you. Your works are done in your depravity and your arrogance. You're going to be saved by a God whose hand is not too short to save whoever he wants to save so that all the glory goes to him. We think of that as a gospel message, but it is the message of the Bible, Old Testament and New, because consistently that's the message of God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.